welcome to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. My name is Susan Sellers, and I'll be your host for today. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous support from the Hanscom Spouses Club. Well, my friends, it is that time of year, PCS season, and we all know with every new adventure to that next duty station, there is the potential for challenges, particularly when it comes to our kiddos and their educational transition. So that is why here at MSEC, we think it is so important that military families not only understand that there are available resources out there, but also Frankly, we want to make sure you know how to use them. And one of the strongest resources out there is the Interstate Compact, or officially as it's known as the Military Interstate Compact, or fondly called the Compact. A lot of us, well, we've heard of it, but do we truly understand what it covers and how we can use it to really advocate for our kids? So we've decided to invite Laura Anastasio from MIC-3, which stands for Military Interstate Compact Commission, to come in and chat with us, not only about how the compact works, how it can support mill kids, but we thought it would also be important to sort of dispel some of those myths out there pertaining to the compact. Laura, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Susan. I'm delighted to be here. Before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of it all, I think it would be really helpful if we just sort of summarize the compact, like when it was created, maybe just a short history about it and where it can be utilized. Sure. Now, first, I'd like to explain exactly what an interstate compact is. Essentially, it's a contract between states which allows governments to work collaboratively to address issues or concerns that arise across borders. The compacts are an effective way for states to identify and solve problems, often avoiding federal intervention. The four corners of the contract dictate what is the scope of the contract and the authority of the commission. Because the states have all agreed to this and abide by this contract, we can't change the terms of the contract by adding on additional functions. Now, the history of the compact, really, it started uh, back in 2006, 2007. The Department of Defense initiated and funded the development of the Military Interstate Children's Compact, which is focused on common education challenges that a student may encounter as they PCS. DOD worked with the Council of State Governments to create an advisory group. And this advisory group developed the Bondal Compact language, which was adopted by all 50 states in the District of Columbia. The compact requires each member state to appoint a compact commissioner who works with the state council to oversee the administration, management, and compliance of the compact within that state. Thank you so much for that explanation. That is so much information. I'm still kind of processing it. But one question that comes immediately to mind, what is the difference between a compact and a law? And why is that important to know? Well, there are different kinds of laws, different levels, really. You have state law, then you have federal law. And federal law is kind of that big umbrella. It applies to all 50 states, people in all 50 states. Compacts exist 
in between the two. Because a compact is adopted under state law, it has the force and effect of state law. However, if a law, rule, or regulation within that state conflicts with the compact law, the compact law supersedes the conflicting law within that state. So the compact is basically saying, despite the requirements in our state statutes for this group of students, the rules of the compact apply. In addition, the compact has enforcement mechanism for noncompliance by a district or state. We may seek mediation, arbitration, and ultimately maybe litigation. Well, I think that's very helpful to understand, you know, as military families, we are frequently moving. And so the federal level, we certainly understand there's continuity in that, but each state does have different state laws. So it's, I think, very important to understand how the compact can, you know, support those state laws. And as you said, can supersede those in a particular case. So let's go over to some of the more common coverages that support our military families within the compact? Well, you know, the main elements of the compact, there are four basic elements that have traditionally been barriers for military families as they move from state to state. And that is eligibility, enrollment, placement, and graduation. And each state has its own state statutes, regulations, guidelines, and local policies that tell you who can enroll in our school district, what classes we're gonna place you in and how we place you in those classes and what our graduation requirements are. And because of that, there's so many differences when a child moves from one state to another, all of a sudden a whole new set of rules apply. So what we're trying to do is maintain some level of consistency between the states so that we can make those transitions less traumatic for students and not hold them back from their education. I think that's very helpful to know that those core elements are eligibility, enrollment, placement, and graduation, because those are certainly areas that impact our military families and our military students, as you said, PCSing from state to state and even overseas. With every great benefit in place, they're usually in place because there are some challenges and oftentimes families turn to social media to check with the community to see, you know, what did you do in this particular case or should we do with this particular challenge? And a lot of people cite the compact, which is great, particularly for those that don't know about its existence, but it doesn't always fit every situation. In addition to what it covers, what can we look at in terms of some of its limitations? Well, the compact provides consistency across states. As you said, it doesn't cover all situations a student might encounter. We want the compact to level the playing field for military kids so they receive the same opportunities as the other students that have resided and grown up in that area receive. Transitions are difficult and the compact serves to ease the challenges and barriers that families face when making these transitions. I wanna make it clear that the compact does not advocate for preferential treatment for military students. It doesn't impact the curriculum or state and local authority over education. It does not apply to preschool or pre-kindergarten students, 
and it does not apply to parochial, private, homeschool, or international schools outside the continental US. And one exception that we have is the Dodea school because we have an agreed place with the Department of Defense. So we treat Dodea students as we would if they were transitioning from any state within the United States. And there are some other areas that I think are important to mention, um, honor roll, valedictorian status, calculation of GPA, that's not part of the compact, unfortunately. And that also can be a challenge that families face when they move to a new state, especially mid-year for a high school student. Another area that can be confusing is the area of special education and related services. We have a federal law set in place that provides a lot of uh, processes and protections for families that do not agree with the IEP that has been offered to their child. At MIC3, we don't have the authority to provide additional you know, dispute resolution processes for these families. There are some things that we can do, but, and we can talk about that later, I think, um, you know, there are some areas in special education where, you know, we have rules in place where the school district has to quickly convene a PPT in order to provide the child with an up-to-date IEP and make sure that they can offer the services that are comparable to what the child was receiving in the previous state. That all is very helpful, I think, for our families. And I think also what would be helpful is if you would be willing to um, go through a couple of scenarios with me. I'd like to put together maybe a couple of different situations that are more common that our families face and have you explain whether the compact would be applicable or not. And if it's not, can you elaborate on why? Sure, that sounds great. The first one that comes to mind that you mentioned for our young kids, kindergarten. So say you have a family that is stationed in North Carolina and their child just finished kindergarten and they PCS or they move to another state that does not start kindergarten until the age six. What would be that particular action plan for that family? Would that child have to repeat kindergarten or could they actually continue on to the next grade level? Well, the compact guarantees that the child may continue their education and or be promoted to the next grade level regardless of their age. So again, notwithstanding the statute in the receiving state, because they started in North Carolina, and they were eligible in North Carolina and went through kindergarten in North Carolina, they should not have to repeat their kindergarten year in the new state. Now I'm gonna switch it just a little bit. So let's say same scenario, but the family was in North Carolina and North Carolina, you know if this is accurate or not, but say, let's just say North Carolina allows kindergarten to start at age five and the child turns five in July, right when they PCS to another state where the age to start kindergarten is six. What you just shared, would that still be applicable? Well, under the compact, the requirement is that the child must have attended kindergarten in the sending state. So if the student is enrolled, but has not attended kindergarten, 
then he would he or she would not be able to you know to go into kindergarten in the next state. But if the child has attended kindergarten, say they were there for the first month in September and they PCS in October, yes, they would be able to continue. The whole idea is to maintain continuity in the child's education. You don't, we don't want to have a child who starts kindergarten is so excited to go to kindergarten. I'm a big girl now and then move to another state and be told, oh, no, you have to go into daycare now. You know, that's horrible. Yes. Absolutely. You know, we want to keep them excited and interested in school as long as we can. And speaking of going to school, we do seem to see a lot of challenges for our high schoolers, particularly those that are moving, say, anytime actually during high school. I know my son, for example, went to three different high schools in three different states. And so we were constantly having to evaluate the state's graduation requirements against the classes he had and trying to keep him on track. Can we kind of talk about a few different scenarios that you've seen when it comes to graduation requirements and some of the ways that would work for students utilizing the compact and maybe any of the areas where maybe it wouldn't be applicable? Sure. You know, the graduation is really a very important aspect of the compact. So many times high schoolers are, you know, in a position where they can't graduate on time because of the many moves that they've made. You know, again, we are trying very hard to ease the transition so that school districts have the flexibility. They may waive courses required for graduation, for example, if a similar course has been completed previously. And again, it doesn't necessarily require that they waive the course. There has to be some calculation of was this truly similar, but it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly the same. If we take a world history course in one state, that should count as a world history course in another state, and the child should not have to retake that class. You know, another area is the state exit and end of course exams and national achievement tests. States may accept the exit exams or end of course exams that were taken in a previous state. The national achievement tests, they should accept those. And they could accept alternate testing in lieu of the, the testing requirements they have for graduation if the child is very close to graduation and has already taken them. Again, we don't want the child taking test after test after test. If he's already been tested, then that should be enough. So. School districts now have that flexibility where they didn't have that before because their state law said you shall take this test before you graduate. Now, because of the compact, they have that ability to say, well, maybe you don't need to take that test. Another area that I think has really been used quite a bit is that the sending school district can issue the diploma. So if you have a situation where the child moves during his senior year, and all of a sudden there are these graduation requirements in the new state that he can't possibly fulfill all those graduation requirements and graduate on time. What the school district in the new state can do is reach out to the sending school district and have a conversation with the guidance counselors. And they can make a determination that maybe the classes that the child is taking in the new state would be acceptable and would, you know, like English or math or science, that would fulfill the remaining graduation requirements in the sending state. And then the child can receive the diploma 
from his previous high school. Because of the compact, the school districts can cooperate with one another and provide a diploma when he can't receive a diploma in the new state. There's another area where if the child um, doesn't get a waiver from a course, I mentioned that they could waive certain courses required for graduation. School district doesn't grant that waiver. The school district has to provide some kind of way for the child to get the coursework. So graduation occurs on time. So maybe it's some online class that they can offer. They have to find some way to get this child out the door so he can go to college when he was ready to go to college. We don't want that disruption in the child's education. Now, there are some things that it doesn't cover. It doesn't require LEAs to give mandatory waivers, uh, but they do have to show good cause when they do deny a waiver. It doesn't require a waiver of an exam or, or an acceptance of an alternative exam, but I think they have to give some explanation as to why. And again, it doesn't grant the parents the right to request a change of graduation requirements. You have to meet the graduation requirements of the receiving district or of the sending district. Again, that's for kids who can't complete the classwork in time. So if you're a senior and you transfer, then you have some ability to get some reciprocity from the ascending school district. If you're a freshman, it's a little bit harder to make the case that you can't meet those graduation requirements. Well, I think that's very interesting. Two things that um, stood out to me, the word may, and that we need to understand as families that the incoming school or the receiving school may do those waivers or they may waive that particular end of grade exam, but it's not mandated in the compact verbiage that they have to. And I think that's important for us as parents to understand that and find a way to work with the school because it's all about supporting the student and maybe even getting creative with how to get those credits. I had heard, um, and I don't know if you had, I had heard one particular school district was allowing if a student had a certain AP score on a particular class, they were allowing that AP score to count instead of having to take an end of grade test. Have you heard that? You know, things like that have happened because again, there is the ability to say, you know, we will accept some alternate test in place of the testing requirements we have for our graduation. So that is something that I think school districts can and should consider. The kids work hard for those AP classes and take those AP exams. I know I took them when I was in high school and it's not easy. So why do we need to test the kid over and over again on the same material, right? I completely agree. And I really appreciate that opportunity for an alternative solution. And hopefully school districts will be more responsive in trying to find those creative solutions. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later and how we can better partner with our school districts. Speaking of testing, one that comes next to me in, in terms of scenarios has to do with our students with exceptional needs. You know, the biggest detriment to their education is a delay in services. Whether if you say PCS over the summer, you want to go into that school and continue on with those services without having having them to be evaluated again, because it's a quite lengthy process. So let's talk some of the scenarios that you're seeing how the compact can support this special group of students and maybe even some of its limitations. 
Yeah, I mean, special education is a really difficult area and, you know, our special needs students, they need that extra support. They need those services and it can be very stressful and frustrating for a family when you're not getting what you feel your child needs. Um, I find that special ed is, is one of the most difficult and the most emotionally draining areas and it's got to be so tough for parents. The receiving state under the compact has to initially provide the same services identified in the student's IEP coming from the sending school district. Now, that on the surface sounds, oh, that's really great. However, that can be very difficult when a child is moving from, say, Connecticut to Arkansas. You know, it might be very different what the school district in Arkansas can actually provide to the child coming from Connecticut. So, what I at least encourage the school districts in Connecticut to do is get that PPT scheduled as quickly as possible. If you can't provide what's in the IEP coming with the child, then you really need to get that child on board quickly. Doesn't always happen and it's really hard to enforce that because by the time it comes to the commission, it's been some time, right? Um, so sometimes what we have to do is look at which are the school districts that are having challenges meeting that requirement and how does the state compact commissioner help that district do better, right? So that's one area that the compact does specifically talk about the IEPs and how the child will be initially served. Next, the receiving state may perform evaluations and they need to do that to ensure that they're providing an appropriate placement for the child. It can be lengthy and time consuming. It can be difficult for the families, but if the school district really needs those evaluations, maybe the ones from the previous district were incomplete, maybe they were done a while ago and they don't feel they're up to date. Um, they have to be given that opportunity. It does not require the LEA to provide the exact program as the sending state. And if the family is not satisfied with the IEP being offered by the new school district, they need to themselves of the opportunities in IDEA and in state law for due process and go through that procedure in order to settle that matter. The process that most states have, they have a state process under the federal IDEA. Every state has to have a process in place. They vary a little bit, but they do need to follow the process. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to explain that and to go through those different scenarios with us. I, I just think that's really helpful for our listeners and frankly, it's helpful for me too. So in addition to, you know, first understanding the coverage of the compact, what do you think is the biggest obstacle when it comes to utilizing the compact to advocate for our kids? You know, what I see very often and it can be very frustrating for families when they move into a state or into a school district, is that very often the schools don't know about the compact or they don't think that they have military kids. You know, we continuously work on promoting and educating all stakeholders on the compact, on the roles and responsibilities of the school districts and trying to educate parents on what their protections are that under the compact. Remember, the compact covers military kids whose parents are also in the Coast Guard, 
Space Force, National Guard and Reserve that are activated under Title 10, military service recruiters, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and the U.S. Public Health Administration. In the case of the last three, the military service recruiters, NOAA and the U.S. Public Administration, they commonly reside in communities that are not located near a military base or installation. So the districts very often don't even know that these families are connected to the military. And when I try and do outreach to school districts in my state, very often I get a response from school districts that are not near the military installation. And they say, oh, we don't have military children. And I can pull out you know, numbers from the Department of Defense. Almost every school district in my state has a, a small number, perhaps, but at least some military children. So very often school district personnel, they've got so much information being thrown at them. They don't have room to put this other piece of information in their heads, unless it's something that they know is going to be important in their work. So very often they don't listen. And I keep trying to get that message out, but I think that's very frustrating for parents when you move into a school district and the people in the school district are like, Compact? What's that? I never heard of it. Nope, we're not doing that for you. Exactly. And that's, you know, some of the feedback that we have gotten here at MSEC. And I think you bring up a really good point. You know, there is a percentage of our military community that are invisible because they're not tied to a military base. It's not as evident to these school districts. But I think you bring up a great uh, counterpoint that there are military kits everywhere. And so MSEC decided because of this lack of knowledge of the compact in school districts and just trying to help families to know how to start that conversation, we and partnered with Seaprol uh, and created what we call a transition toolkit. And listeners, you can find that on our website. We provide parent and educator resources that include an explanation of the compact, even a student advocacy script, because sometimes we just don't know how to start those conversations. Now, for those families, though, that have tried to start that conversation with the school district and they're needing some further assistance, what would you recommend? Well, I recommend that parents visit our website at mic3.net because we have a parent toolkit and that provides a lot of helpful information for families. I also would visit the web pages on our site to find out who the school liaison is. Every military installation has a school liaison, I believe. And on our website page, we can give you the contact information for that person. School liaisons are so important and they can be incredibly helpful with families navigating all these issues with the school district. They know the school districts in their area. They know who to contact and they know what to say. And very often you're dealing with your child and you're moving and it's stressful. It can be very frustrating when somebody says, never heard of the compact, you know, we don't have to comply with that. It can be very upsetting, but sometimes it's better to find someone else who can navigate that with you and help you. Because in the long run, we all have to work together to educate our children. And we don't want to be fighting with one another. We just need to be working together. 
it's all for the benefit of the child. And I think everybody has that intention of helping the child to be academically and life ready. And I like that MIC-3 also has commissioners at every state level. So for those families that may be not close to an area that has a student liaison, they could reach out directly to that commissioning office there in that particular state and get other resources or find ways to partner with the MIC-3 on their particular situation. And you can also find all that contact information on the MIC-3 website. What do you see in terms of the future for the compact? Well, we have to continuously focus on ensuring that every state has a solid working program of support for families. We need a commissioner, we need a state council, and we need to make sure that we're continuously conducting outreach and training for school districts. No matter how often you can say, oh, I did training last year, but you know what? Every year there's turnover in a school district and many times people come into education, they don't necessarily know about the compact and they might end up in a school district where there are a lot of military students. And if they don't know, then they're not really gonna be able to help families that much. So we've developed a ton of resources and support for commissioners and states to ensure that not only the school districts, but families as well are educated about the compact and how school districts need to comply with it. So we need to be flexible and adapt. During COVID, we moved to webinars and more virtual training, but it was also convenient for attendees to fit the training into their busy days. So we're continuing the virtual trainings that we started during the pandemic. And while we don't think it's going to replace personal events, it certainly expands the opportunity to spread the word. And certainly doing this podcast, we are trying to spread the word as well. And I'm so glad that you were coming on to chat with us. As we wrap up, I would love for you to maybe share a story that really sums up how the compact can be a resource for our military families. Well, you know, the compact provides some of these protections that we, you know, we discussed. And I think the knowledge of those protections and the confidence that, yes, there are people out there who are going to help me if the school district doesn't understand what those protections are is really important. I had a situation recently and goes back to education piece where I got a call from a family and they were flabbergasted, moved to Connecticut to a district that was near a military installation. So they had a lot of military students. And their child had taken middle school algebra one, and they were trying to get the child into middle school algebra two. And the school district said, oh, no, you have to retake algebra one. I was scratching my head because I'm like, what, this school district? So I just picked up the phone because I've been around for quite a few years. And I know the superintendent. I called her up and she said, well, let me check and see what's going on. And then she called me back and she said, you know, I am so sorry. I had so much turnover in our district and we've been so busy. We really haven't been able to train a lot of our new administrators. And this was a brand new principal. He just had no idea what the compact was. It was really wonderful to actually have her say that to me. And I said, you know what? I can do a training, a webinar for anyone in your district. And she got really excited about it. And she actually had 
not only teachers, counselors, and school administrators call in, but she also had her central office staff members. And very often they don't get included in trainings, the secretaries, the people who actually enroll the kids initially when they show up at the school. So they do need to know about the compact. So this presented an incredible opportunity just to make sure that we really are training people even in the military impacted school districts because they don't always have the time to do all of that themselves. Well, I agree because I think if every person that has a touch point with that student, it would benefit them to understand how the compact works. And I'm just grateful that you took the time to come on the show today and to explain the facts to myself, to our listeners. And I think they're really gonna appreciate this information and it's going to help them to be better prepared for that next PCS move. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And I hope that we will continue to provide really great resources for families and for school districts so that we can make sure that our military kiddos are making those transitions with the least disruption possible. And for our listeners, all the resources that we mentioned today, we're going to put in our show's notes so that you have access to that. You've been listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. Thank you again to the Hanscom Spouses Club for their generous support of this podcast. Until next time, live a great story.